love that song. Let's pray. So God, we, we thank you for amazing grace, and we thank you for what you've done for us in, in Jesus. And so now we ask, God, that you would speak to us this morning. Um, let your word go forth and let it not come back void. Um, enliven our hearts to hear you this morning. And in hearing, may we come to love you and be transformed into your likeness, the likeness of Jesus. And it's his name that we pray, amen. Hey, so uh, you may not know this, but when I did my undergraduate studies, I was a history major. And I focused on, um, I did a, a special focus on church history. And one of the things I remember to this day, I remember the day when I read an account where it started talking about the early church and how as a part of their witness, uh, they um, self-sacrificially gave their life um, and cared for their neighbor, their enemy, uh, even in the midst of all sorts of trial and tribulation and, and suffering. During the time that the church was just beginning in the first three centuries, there were a number of plagues that swept through the Roman Empire. And one of them in the year 251, we believe was probably most likely measles. And it was so devastating to the population that uh, up to a quarter to a third of the population died during that, that plague. And it was generally centered in urban populations because that's where all the people were. And so during that time when, when everyone was dying from these, uh, this unknown disease, you saw those cities, people in those cities flee to the countryside, to the surrounding areas to get away from what looked like eminent death. And yet what was interesting was that the Christians became known for staying. Uh, Christianity during that time was predominantly an urban faith. That's where it had kind of sprung up um, and taken root and it was meeting the needs of poor and marginalized and those population centers were great incubators for the gospel to take hold. And so Christians saw there as a part of their vocation when, when they saw what was going on with these with people dying, they would choose to remain and care for those, those that were struggling or suffering with these diseases. So um, one of the renowned pastors of the time, Dionysius, during um, uh, around 262, I think it was, wrote a letter around Easter time kind of recounting what the Christians were doing during that period of time. He said this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing uh, curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. About a hundred years later, Julian, uh, the emperor of of that time, who was sometimes in some circles referred to as the apostate, for he was no friend to Christianity and was actively seeking to turn the empire back to pagan worship. 
He also recounted, so an enemy of Christianity recounted and observed this phenomenon of Christians making a name for themselves through caring for others. He said this, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, and by this he means the priests of the pagan temples, the impious Galileans, because that's what he called Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, right? So did you hear that? They take care of not only their, their own, but they take care of us as well, their enemies. Now what's going on there? Why would they do such a thing, especially during the time when it was by and large, accepted practice that you looked out for you and yours, and you didn't cross the lines of social, economic, and, and racial barriers that even, even if you were in a met- metropolitan area. Why were these Christians willing to care not only for themselves, but their enemies? Is it like Julian said, that they saw an opportunity to grow their numbers through benevolence? Or is it because They saw in themselves a calling to follow into the world their Lord who had given them a law of love. Jesus talks extensively throughout the Gospels of what it is to obediently follow God, to love him and love neighbor. It's what we usually call the law of love. And nowhere is that more clear than in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is going to be a familiar passage to you, but I hope we can, and I don't have enough time to tease out everything, but I hope we can um, highlight a couple things. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you go and do likewise. So this is the parable of the good Samaritan Right? Very familiar. And oftentimes understood as this ethical mandate to love other people and love them well. 
But I feel like we read that parable sometimes out of context. And when we do, we miss out on a deeper layer that exists in Jesus' own recounting and story um, here. So let me just highlight those things. I can't get into the whole parable, but let me highlight some context. Here we have a lawyer coming to test uh, Jesus in order that he might justify himself, prove himself to be a righteous individual so that God, uh, he might be well regarded by God and all who he, uh, and whom he came into contact with. So he approaches Jesus and tests him, asking him, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks, puts the question back on him, and that man then says, most likely parroting what he had heard Jesus say at other times and in other contexts, uh, well, you sum up the law by saying that you love to, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, very good. But then the, the, the lawyer, like we said, in an attempt to justify his own life, asked the question, so who's my neighbor? Can you outline for me who it is that I'm in, um, called to love in this way. Most likely he is thinking in terms of friends and family, for this is what the, uh, a good Jew of the time would have thought. Or at the very least, uh, his neighbor would be defined by the, his own racial group and religious group, those that he had in common ideologically and socially and ethnically with. But rather than uh, delineating who his neighbor is for him. Jesus, again, puts it back on him, but this time doing it through a parable. And he talks to him about a man who, in journeying to Jerusalem from Jericho, comes under threat and is robbed by a bunch of bandits and he's beaten and left to, there on the road to die. And the, the very people that come along uh, on the way, the priest and Levite, the, the ones that most, you would have most likely would have um, been looked out for their neighbor pass on by. And then Jesus does something interesting. He positions the one who shows up to help, uh, he positions that person as a Samaritan. Now who are the Samaritans? These were considered by the faithful Jews half-breeds for a long time ago, centuries before, they had been conquered by another empire, the Jews in the, that in, in the area of Samaria, and they had, been, they, they had chosen to intermingle racially with them. And so um, faithful Jews would look on Samaritans kind of ensconce and say, you're, you're worse than Gentiles because you had this treasure. You were, you were God's people and you spurned it and you intermingled with the other nations. And so, so much were Samaritans detested by faithful Jews that Jews who lived in the north in Galilee would oftentimes, instead of heading straight south when they wanted to travel to Jerusalem and travel through Samaria, they would choose instead to uh, circumvent it. They'd go over, cross the Jordan River and travel down through what we consider now modern day Jordan and then come back through along the road of Jericho to Jerusalem. So likely the, the man who was attacked by robbers traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem had just spent an extra day avoiding Samaritans. And the Samaritan was the one who came then and bound up his wounds and cared for him at great cost to himself. The one who was least likely to help. 
the one most likely to be in need of help because Samaritans were always on the margins. Jesus positions this one, this unexpected agent of God's gospel, to care for the wounded and the broken. Isn't that interesting? This is Jubilee Sunday. And for the last year and a half since I've been here, we've we instituted once a quarter a Sunday where we reflect on what it is to seek the benefit of our neighbor, what it is to live out the gospel in our lives in such a way that our neighbor is blessed by our existence and we love them with no other agenda, no, no ideology other than they exist and that they are there. What does it look like to seek the benefit of those regardless of ideology, commitment, belief? but to just love as Jesus loved. And over the last year and a half, it's been a growing time, right? We've tried different things. You remember we've done some stuff with Sun Valley in the past. We've done some international stuff, some stuff with some of our local mission partners. But during that whole period of time, uh, I've been dreaming and asking the question, what does it look like for us, the sanctuary, to be here downtown in the Lohi and the downtown area to love our neighborhood and love the downtown community? And in that time, we've been praying and thinking and hoping for, I have at least, someone who would come alongside and help us walk with us, journey with us into downtown Denver so that we would know in, in a more deep and full way what it looks like to love our city, the city that we've been planted in and that we're called to grow in. And a few months back, uh, several months now, I had the opportunity to run into some people from an organization called Mile High Ministries. And during the context of that, uh, those encounters, um, I realized something, some, two things kind of moved inside of me. One was strategic. I loved what I was hearing about Mile High in terms of the breadth and depth of their mission and ministry in the city of Denver. They really love Denver. And they love the people on the margins in Denver. And they've committed themselves to live in community with those people. And so they have a number of different agencies that they use to engage and mobilize communities to love and care for the poor in Denver. And so I thought to myself strategically, boy, wouldn't that be great because they've been doing this for 25, 30 years. They would be great partners to walk us into that kind of life. But beyond that, and there's a second thing I thought, and this was something deep inside of me, and it's hard to define, but I just, I just liked them. I just really liked them. I liked who they are. Everyone I encountered, I just, I, I remember thinking to myself, these are our kind of people. I love the tone of their posture and towards others. And, and I felt here we have the potential for friendship with someone. So you know that we have a number of different mission, mission partners that we support and collaborate with throughout the city. And these are, uh, Mile High is a new um, potential hopeful partner that we hope to do some of our Jubilee services with going forward, as well as a number of other low-level engagements and encounters. And uh, I really kind of feel like they could be a gift to us, like, a, the, like the one most unlikely um, to help could actually be the most helpful to us because I believe that they have the potential to model to us and help us become better followers of Jesus in the city of Denver. 
So what I'd like to do this morning is invite representatives of Mile High, beginning with Jeff, the executive director, to come up and share briefly their heart with you. Thank you. It was really nice. Good morning, everybody. It's really nice to be invited to be here at the sanctuary this morning and to worship with you and get a chance to tell you a little bit about who we are. It was uh, almost 27 years ago now that a group of followers of Jesus coming together from different churches, really diverse group of people and churches, uh, came together around this rumor that God has a heart for the poor and that God has a heart for our city, and that what happens in the city really matters to God, and that places and neighborhoods matter to God. And that was a new, all of that was new to me, but it seemed intriguing. There was a lot of compassionate people in that group, and I'm not sure I was one of them, but I was looking for an adventure. And so I I offered to help and be part of that group. And uh, here we are now, 27 years later, God has, Uh, been really good to us and allowed us to find ways to be part of the fabric of uh, love and care for our city. And so we we bought some old houses and kind of set ourselves down in the heart of the city and went about learning best ways to care for because what we found is there are some ways that are really helpful and then there are other ways that aren't quite as helpful. We bought those old houses, by the way, and our old friend Biff Baldry over here was the architect that helped us get them set in place. So it was really a joy to walk in and see Biff here today. And uh, we've been friends and partners for a long time. Um, And then over time, we learned, too, that one of the most important things we could do in the city was to give our best energies to raising up and training leaders who are from the community and for the community. So we'll tell you a little bit now about some of the practical ways that we do those things. But before we get to that practical part, I wanna say just one thing about why we do all this and what's behind it for all of us. And that is this sense this, uh, that we've deeply internalized that God wants to see something really beautiful happen in Denver and in all the cities of the world where people are flocking, you know, it's happening in the blink of an eye. Humanity has been, we have been rural people for our entire history. And in the blink of an eye, in your lifetime and mine, we are moving to the city everywhere, all across the planet. And so our faith that was often formed out on the frontier, having to learn how to be urban. But the cool part, like Andrew said, was that Our faith was really born in the cities, and the first 300 years was an urban faith. So we're learning about that, and what we've become convinced, and we see this throughout scripture, but most beautifully for us in Isaiah chapter 65, that God wants ours to be a city where people who were once poor now begin to prosper. And a a city where children don't have to grow up in neighborhoods where they're doomed to misfortune. And that God wants ours to be a city where those who are unlikely partners, in fact, where people who are natural enemies can be friends, can share life together, can build community together. 
So in a, in a day and age where often we are dividing ourselves because we disagree about various things, we think it's on God's heart to unite across all those artificial boundaries that divide us for the sake of building a community and a city together. That's what we take from Isaiah 65. You can read that beautiful passage later. So then we, we believe those things and then we try to find practical ways to live them out. So I'm gonna invite some of my friends to come and tell you about a few of those practical ways. And Penny, do you wanna come first and tell us about Joshua Station? I do. This is Penny. Um, I'm the director of Joshua Station. Joshua Station is a transformational in the other world, the, not our world, they call it trans, trans, transitional, thank you. Um, but we call it transformational. Um, housing program for homeless families. So that part of the thing about the poor no longer being doomed to failure and children you know, needing care and service. That's what we do at Joshua Station. And um, I just, I've been so, I love this service today. I've been having this really cool, synchronistic love affair with Jesus for this last week in a way that I haven't had in a while. And it's way cool. And I show up here this morning and it just keeps going. And so thanks for that. But, um, so the song we were singing and it said, Amazing Grace and Unfailing Love. And that, that's what we do at Joshua Station. We receive that grace and that love and we try to pour it out to those around us and building that community where poor prosper and children are no longer doomed. And so some of the greatest things that happen at Joshua Station Every day, kids come home from school, get off the bus, and find themselves in the hallway going from door to door to door saying, hi, Miss Penny, hi, Miss Karen, greeting us and giving us a hug and getting a hug and having somebody ask them how their day was and, and telling us, guess what I learned today? Guess what I learned today? And it's just, it's beautiful. The other thing I wanted to tell you that's really great about all the years that we've been doing ministry and uh, Joshua Station, how old is Joshua Station? 2001, so 12, 12, 12 or 13 years. Um, we now have five folks that were once program members in our transformational housing program who've really entered into their transformation and now work for us. So it's really cool. Every day I get to talk. One of them is my assistant and volunteer coordinator. And every day I get to um, talk with her and see her. And one of the things that happens at Joshua Station is that people move in, they stay a couple years, and then I don't want to let them leave. I want them to stay. And if it was my way, we would have all the same 20 people we had when I started, still living there, and no new friends. And I keep saying to God, how big can it get? How many more friends and children can I love? And it, it's unfailing, right? Just, they just keep coming and I just keep loving. And it's, and it's so wonderful. And so I've known Rhiannon for years and years and years. I've watched her little girl come to Joshua Station at four or five, and now she's gonna be 13. And it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And um, we've got stuff downstairs. Come and talk to us and find out how you can come and experience some of that 
grace and unfailing love. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Uh, Scott is here. Why don't you come on up, Scott? Scott's the director of a leadership development program called the Issachar Center for Urban Leadership. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks. So you guys drive by um, Mile High's the Joshua Station on I-25 and 8th Avenue, so there's a hotel on the east side that you drive past. So we also, there's another campus kind of of Mile High that's over on the east side at 24th and Downing, that's called the Issachar Center. And the Issachar Center is a, Issachar Center for Urban Leadership. And so it's a place, just this last week, we were having conversations about education equity with a professor from UCD that was with us and talking about the exile, you know, the Israel in exile. And so we're bringing together, trying the Bible and the newspaper and trying to bring together um, things that are happening. In terms of explaining what it is, um, Issachar is a residential, has an apprentice program where we've got college students that live there for two years, um, are serving in the community, are meeting with us during the week, are going to college and, um, and then living you know, uh, as a cohort group. So that's, that's happening. There's a lot I could tell you about that, but to kind of explain Issachar, I wanted to um, tell two stories. One is that if you were to look for sermon material as if you're gonna speak or teaching material, you might not often go to Chronicles, to the book of First Chronicles, but in the book of First Chronicles, and even if you went there, you probably wouldn't go to chapter 12 where they're recounting the tribes of Israel and because David's kind of getting these soldiers together, and so you may not go there to look for teaching material, but there's a verse in there that Jeff caught and that has captured our imagination um, at the Issachar Center when he started 15 years ago. The, um, and the verses, as they went through each tribe of Israel, the smallest one was a tribe of Issachar. And it said that the people of Issachar understood the times and knew what God's people should do. And so that was the idea, was that God's people understood what was going on. And I thought even, Andrew, as you were talking about the people in 300 you know, AD, they understood what was happening, the, the, the uh, plague, and they knew how they should respond as, as, as followers of Jesus. And so that has captured our imagination. The other thing, just as there was passages in the Bible that may not think about going to, there's also places in the city that you may not think about going to for leadership. If you were gonna go find emerging and really exciting, innovative leadership, there may be places that you may not think of going right away. We were in one of those places recently. I met up at Wingstop over in Montbello, and uh, I met there with a guy named Daniel Rose, who's an alumni of Issachar, and I met with him and three young leaders who are working at Montbello High School with Young Life. And we all gathered there at, at the wing stop with another one of our staff to tell these three young leaders that they were gonna be, that they were accepted into the apprentice program for next year. And so Andres and Kaylin and Jordan heard that they were gonna be part of this two-year residential program. After a bunch of tears and you know, excitement and we're all excited about next year, we spend some time saying, now what do we wanna get in the next two years and what do you hope for for each other? Because these three have worked together for a while. What do you hope for each other in the next couple of years? And they're about to start on a journey together. And so the Issachar Center, if you were to come a Tuesday night, you'd, you'd see a bunch of young leaders like Andres and Kaylin and Jordan talking about anything from Syria and what's happening in Syria to education equity 
to some theological conversation um, as we're trying to say, how do we understand the times and know what God's people should do, particularly for young emerging leaders in Denver? Thank you, Scott. Steve, do you want to come on up? Steve, uh, Steve Thompson's an attorney and uh, is the director of the Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Clinic, which is part of our organization. Good morning. I'm a lawyer. It is my ilk that was often asking Jesus the questions, <laughs> seeking to justify themselves, but that's not what we're trying to do today. Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Clinic um, gets its name, and everybody told me it was too long when we first started talking about starting JAMLAC, JAMLAC for short, but Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Clinic gets its name from Micah 6-8, uh, which is, he's shown you people what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And uh, at the Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Clinic, our role is to empower the poor. That's one of the key things that Mile High Ministries does. And we provide practical legal representation to people who are struggling with poverty and oppression. And we try to do that in a way that affirms their dignity and strengthens their capacity to positively direct their own lives. We found that uh, when people are struggling with poverty and oppression, there is often a legal impediment that keeps them from becoming all that they can be. And as Penny was talking about the, the five people who were, went through her program that are now on staff at, uh, at Mile High, uh, we're happy that four, all five of those had legal issues. Four of those we were able to help at the Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Clinic. And so what, what we do is we try and think strategically about what justice is for people and how as attorneys, and there are four of us on staff, and then we have a variety of attorneys who volunteer for us, and that's very important to us to get people involved in helping people take a step that's gonna help them uh, be productive in their world. We believe that justice is a bridge between whatever is oppressing people and keeping them from being productive to shalom, or the peace that God intends for everyone to have. And seeking justice for them is helping them get from that place to this place. And so there are two, uh, well, there's one major area that we work in, and we, we work um, not exclusively, but on a, a large part of our work is with victims of domestic violence. And we help them uh, get from a place where they're being held down and oppressed to a place where they um, can be productive in the world, take care of their families and get out of relationships, often that's what it takes, uh, that are oppressing them and holding them down. And that's the largest part of our work. But we also uh, have another very important part of our work that I just wanna talk a little bit about this morning. I was really happy that this was called Jubilee uh, Sunday. As uh, uh, I'm kinda with Penny, I'm kinda getting a good vibe from you folks, both because I love this passage and the lawyer asking the question and such. And I wonder, you know, he talks about the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. I wonder what, what's the lawyer gonna do? That was my question. What's the lawyer gonna do? And we don't know exactly what he's going to do. Jesus told him to go and do likewise, but we don't know exactly what happened with him. Um, Jubilee is a great concept. And what I, we have a por portion of our ministry that I call internally, we don't talk to everybody about it, our Jubilee ministry. And that's helping people with bankruptcies. And specifically, we help people who are associated with the Denver Rescue Mission's new life program with bankruptcies. And it's a, a tremendous blessing. I believe that that's, uh, a, a fresh start that I think is based actually in the scriptures in the sabbatical year and in the Jubilee. And often, I had three of them in my office Friday, 
<clears throat> we have folks who are in the second phase of the New Life program. Our clients are not the guys that you see standing outside on Lawrence close to the ballpark, but those people become our clients once they've gotten to a point in their lives where they uh, are, want to take the next step and get out and get employed. And often all they have is the clothes that the mission have given them and often a ton of debt. And uh, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to help them with that legal part. Sometimes people just don't get over that because it's complicated. And an attorney helping them through that can get them past that. And we also have the pr privilege of joining the mission, rescue mission, in affirming their faith, praying for them, hearing their stories is a tremendous blessing for us and joining them and bringing them from that place of oppression, even if it's oppression that's caused by their own choices. Although a lot of times there's a lot more factors than that, and you guys probably all know that, to a place where they can be productive in society. And uh, that's what I call our, our jubilee part of our ministry. So that's just one of the things that we do. That's interesting. I, I was surprised. I didn't know you were going to go there, and I'd never heard you talk about it in that way before. I thought you might talk about our work with immigrants as also an expression of that jubilee. Folks who, who are in a, a bad situation legally because they're here undocumented. Uh, and then often are victims of domestic violence and we're able to help them to become legal residents of the United States. So that's an expression of Jubilee as well. All right, thanks. Okay, Greg and Nicole are here and they're with the Denver Urban Semester. And uh, I'll let Greg tell you what that is and introduce Nicole. Thanks for having us. Um, the Denver Urban Semester is an arm of Mile High Ministry that focuses on um, people like us that really were not born poor, um, but they have a real heart to serve in that relationship. Um, we particularly work with colleges in the Midwest. Um, we've had 170 students come the last eight years, and they come from schools like Wheaton, Northwestern, Hope College, schools that mainly are predominantly white. And, they, and they're kids who, like Nicole, are being called and led into relationship with the marginalized and haven't had a context or really training to do it right. So we, we really focus on that. I'm letting Nicole talk a little about her experience. Hi, um, man, I could tell you so many stories about how um, the Denver Urban Semester has impacted my life, but kind of a main theme or something that God really began in me and continues to teach me about is just this idea of um, restoring dignity to people and specifically with the poor, but in reality, each and every person I encounter. and. Um, Really for me, I feel like the idea of restoring dignity is really calling out and recognizing like someone's true value and their true worth um, and who they really are and the way that God sees them. Um, and starting with myself. And so the Denver Urban Semester really allows you the opportunity to um, be in a place where you can wrestle with that and you can understand really who, who am I and um, uncovering your true self and um, recognizing the ways that God has gifted you. Um, so I had the opportunity to intern with Dry Bones, which is a ministry among homeless youth here um, while I was in the program. And um, so DUS has really kind of been like a, just a starting point for me. I in, um, was a part of it in 2011. And so I was able to come back to Denver um, and continue an internship with Dry Bones. And I'm currently a student at Colorado Christian University. Um, and so it's just really kind of just been, it was a space, I think, for me to begin to really understand um, where God is calling me, and it's a place um, to develop leaders um, in the urban cities. So that's just a little bit. Come talk to us after if you have questions. 
And just to kind of close with that, our concept and idea comes out of Ephesians, where Paul asked pastors and teachers to lift up the young, help them see their gifts, and move into ministry. And we do a, a real huge thing. We have we partner with forty different nonprofits in the city, so in the Mount Mile High, and we really help young adults move into their vocation. So, like with Nicole. If they're kind of bent or leaning in this way, we connect them to this relationship with an organization, and then we provide a context of them living in the community, discipleship, and also just learning like what it means to live cross-culturally and have a multicultural frame of life. Um, so that's some of the components, thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for listening to us. Come visit with us after church. And Andrew, thanks. Oftentimes, if we are invited to a church, they'll say something like, you have two minutes. And when they said, take 15 minutes or 20 minutes and tell us about what you're doing, that was like, wow, they really care. So thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks. after, immediately after the service, the, the folks from Mile High are going to be downstairs. They've got um, tables set up where you can go and explore um, a little bit more about some of what they're doing. And uh, our missions team is going to be down there as well. They've experienced uh, and gone on some of these excursions and done some meals and stuff. And they can speak about their own experience as well. Um, it's my dream and my heart that something's awakening in you this morning and there's a stirring and you're gonna follow, you're gonna pay attention to that and you're gonna follow up on it. I'd love to see not only individuals from our church get connected, but some of our small groups to begin thinking, hey, this is a great way we can serve our city, love our neighbor together in community. And of course, our missions team is gonna be looking at um, doing some church-wide initiatives where we can either on Jubilee weekends or midweek stuff uh, once a month where we're gonna organize some uh, outings as well um, to support and care for what's going on down there. Um, and so i just love for you to spend some time and not just bug out after the service, but go downstairs. We've got breakfast burritos downstairs that you can have from, where did we get, San, Santiago's? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some coffee, um, but he, okay. So back to the Good Samaritan, right? And what we were preaching through. Why did those, and I want to ask that question again. Why did those early Christians in the first three centuries stick around when everyone was dying because of plague and care and stay in the city and care for those that they encountered? Why did they do that? Well, there's strong, strong evidence that when they read that early church, when they read the passage like the Good Samaritan, they interpreted it as not just an ethical standard for how they are to live their life, but they saw Jesus in that story. There's strong evidence that says that they interpreted the Good Samaritan as, in fact, Jesus himself, one who had been outcast and ostracized, but who, had, who, com- who comes, the agent of God's gospel, who comes unexpectedly and binds up the broken at great cost to himself as he journeys into the world. And so those Christians, when they saw Jesus in that story, they realized it's not just about testing or justifying our own existence. It's not just an ethical demand that we should feel guilty about when we don't, because who can live up to the call to love God and love neighbor perfectly? But it is a calling when Jesus, would say, when Jesus says, go and do likewise. 
He was calling them to say, go and do this because you're a part of me. And this is who I am. This is my very character. This is what I'm all about. And, the, and my Father who sends me into the world is also sending you. And so this morning, as we continue in our worship, we're reminded that that's what the table's all about. God's unending uh, uh, love, his amazing grace poured out for us as a people. And that when we take part in this meal, we are participating in his very life. And we are too are being called into the world that he journeys into where he makes his enemy his neighbor. And so the question isn't, is no longer, who is my neighbor? But the question becomes, who becomes my neighbor? And that's everybody. Everyone who's in need, everyone who's by on the wayside, everyone who uh, is broken and needs to be bound up. And so our prayer and our hope to this this morning is that we would live, hear that word, that calling by, by Jesus to go and do likewise and follow him into the world. For on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he gave thanks and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his saving death until he comes again. And so, our friends, I invite you to come forward this morning. Come down uh, in, in through the aisles. Take a piece of bread at the station. Dip it in the cup. And just a little tweak here. Normally, we have a gluten-free station set up in front, but we realize, hey, we, that feels too impersonal. So there's going to be a person with a gluten-free station over here as well that you, if you need to, can partake, um, participate over here, okay? Um, but let's continue in our worship this morning and move into the world in love for a neighbor. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come. Okay, so as we wrap up our worship service, I want to remind you, if you need prayer, we have our prayer partner, or members of our prayer team down in front, and you're invited to go downstairs. We, we've got um, breakfast burritos and coffee for you, and you can meet and learn and get to know um, Mile High, about Mile High Ministries. But hopefully you heard this morning the message that the, like, the Good Samaritan love of neighbor is not just, it's not simply an ethical demand or commandment. But if it's true, if Jesus is embedded at the very heart of that story, then it's revelation, right? That it's God revealing his very heart to us through his unexpected agent of good news who comes at great cost to himself and binds up our brokenness and brings salvation. And we then get to participate in life. If when we go and do likewise, like their life is, right? So as we go then, and we go forward from this place, know that God is always better than you thought. The love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. Friends, go in peace this morning. Amen? Amen. All right, see you downstairs. Amen.